to Liberty Unlocked. I'm Dom Watkins. One of the most challenging things about becoming more persuasive is the difficulty of getting direct immediate feedback on whether you're being successful or not. And yet this is really integral to being able to build a skill set is to know, all right, am I doing a good job? And I've always had a deep jealousy of my friends who worked in fields like education where it's not exactly a persuasive context, but you can see in the reaction of your students and with the actual exams that they do, all right, am I communicating the information that I'm trying to? And I, on the other hand, would essentially have to go spend two years in a room writing something, hope that when it goes out into the world, I've been able to deploy persuasive skill sets and apply them to that particular issue in a way that's effective. Well, one of the fields that I've always recognized as extremely good for assessing and getting feedback on your persuasive ability is law. And in particular, lawyers who are law, uh, arguing before justices and getting not just a decision, but written reasons why they won or lost. And so today's guest is Jeff Rose from the Institute for Justice. Uh, the Institute for Justice, you probably heard from those, one of the really most effective organizations fighting for pro-liberty ideas in the law, both at the level of trying to get good ideas implanted in the law itself, and then secondarily making the case for the public about the virtues of pro-liberty law. And we go into a lot of different facets of what he's learned by arguing cases and presenting those cases to the public and learning a lot about how to, things that you can learn that come from and have been validated under some of the most high pressure, persuasive um, systems that could exist, which is a court of law where there's very defined rules for how you can and can't argue and very defined outcomes. And so uh, I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Email me at Don at Don's Writing. Best way to support the show as always is go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. And of course, you can support this program financially by going to libertyunlocked.com. Now on the conversation with Jeff Rose. Well, great. Thanks for coming on. So, I mean, just so people have a high level understanding of who you are, tell us a little bit about what you do at the Institute for Justice. Sure. My name is Jeff Rose, and at the Institute for Justice, I'm a senior attorney. And so what that means is that I supervise and engage in strategic constitutional litigation. And so at IJ, we're not legal aid. We're not coming, we're, we don't take cases just to help our specific clients. We're looking for strategic cases that will help us set precedent that will vindicate the rights of our clients, but also protect people across the country. So I'm excited to delve into that because I mean, I've been following IJ's work for a few decades now. And, um, but I mean, so the traditional story, right, is kid graduates from high school, does really well, goes to college, does really well, goes to law school, does really well, goes into legal practice. That was not your story. Uh, tell me a little bit just about how you even got started on this trajectory. Okay, sure. So yeah, my story is a little bit unusual. I grew up in Western Canada and I was the proverbial angry young man. I was the brooding, 
you know, kind of intellectually precocious teenager, but didn't, you know, thought that I was smarter than everybody. Uh, didn't get along with my teachers. I didn't do any work in school. I was failing out of high school. So I actually dropped out of high school. And then I moved to the uh, Rocky Mountains and was a ski instructor. And then um, when I, I when I turned 18 in March of 1990, and bear in mind, this was long before cell phones and the internet. Um, when I was 18 years old, I went by myself to Asia for six months and backpacked around um, and just saw the world. And one of the things that happened there was that I, um, I actually met an 18-year-old guy in Burma. I'd crossed illegally into Burma and met a guy who was a member of the Karen National Union Army. And he'd been shot up pretty seriously. And he was convalescing in this bamboo hut in the jungle. I mean, just like a dirt floor thing. And I realized um, that I was squandering the opportunities of being born where I was born and I had to give up the angry young man routine. So eventually when I went back home, my dad begged them uh, to let me into the University of Alberta. I had failing grades and, and didn't have a diploma. And he managed to convince them to let me in as a probationary student. Then once I was applying myself, I turned out to be a good student. Um, I was you know, really good in college. I moved to Japan and worked there for a few years as a translator after college. And then I uh, did a master's degree in philosophy, bummed around the world rock climbing for another year, and then uh, eventually went to law school and uh, clerked a little bit, worked for some federal judges, and then started work at IJ in 2005. And I've been a lawyer there for 15 years. So somewhere in that mix, you got interested in liberty-oriented ideas. How did that come about? Where, did you start out with that orientation? Was it kind of a very like quick revelation? Or w what was the process by which you went from where you started to devoting your life to fighting for a freer society? Right. So, the, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of an unusual story. And, and usually you don't get hit over the head with a liberty hammer while you're a college student in Canada. Uh, um, it's sort of the opposite. Um, but I had a professor who uh, he had gotten his PhD. He was an American. He got his PhD at the University of Chicago. And he had sort of he, he participated in um, sort of anti-government rhetoric and protest during the 1960s. And he actually had a difficult time getting a job at an American university. And he came up to the University of Alberta in Canada and never, and never left. Um, and so he had studied uh, and was interested in, you know, the philosophy of liberty. And he got me turned on to that. I'd actually went to the University of Chicago after living in Japan to pursue a PhD. Um, and, and this was in the mid-90s, like 1996. And after um, doing that for a while, I realized that, you know, I'm not sure I want to be a professor. And so what I should do is I should go to law school. And if I want to, I could be a law professor. But if I didn't want to do that, um, I'd actually have real skills and could go out and make a living. And, and in some sense, I found the perfect compromise between the two, because IJ is intellectual. I, I'm actually an adjunct professor of constitutional law at the University of Texas now. Um, but I get to also do, you know, these kind of big think cases, like I'm in the game. I'm not just a referee or kind of someone on the sidelines comment, commenting. Yeah, that's, was, was there any, aside from this professor, were there any particular thinkers who you thought were making a really compelling case? Anybody who you studied very closely? Uh, well, I, I remember reading The Road to Serfdom. Um, and I thought that, oh, you know, this captures, in, in my mind at, at that age, this captures the kind of inevitable progression, the inevitable logic of restricting people's liberty and restricting people's liberty. And in fact, the people will freely give it away and not entirely realize it. Um, and then I became interested in the American Revolution and the Enlightenment thinkers, um, people like Adam Smith, kind of the Scottish Enlightenment, people like Adam Smith, David Hume, um, 
and then you know just you know the kind of before him like uh john locke and this you know this kind of thing uh these are the kinds of thinkers that interested me in particular when i was in college um and then i also became interested in law and economics when i was in when i was in law school so it you know it wasn't just a kind of theoretical philosophical grounding but it was also just a kind of pragmatic attention to the kinds of rules we need to lead to human flourishing. Well, I mean, that's an interesting pedigree because I think there can definitely be the just too philosophic and detached from the world and sort of focused on an idealism that's not rooted in activism. Um, but there can also be the opposite, which is you just have this very kind of narrow economic focus. And one of the interesting things was the thinkers who were thinking about law were thinking about it in the context of thinking about morality, thinking about history, thinking about philosophy and ethics. And they had just a very rich conception of why liberty was important and that enabled them to think about how it applied to different cases. And so they weren't so specialized that they were cut off from the fullness of human life in a way that I think sometimes one of the things that can make people who are very, very specialized unconvincing is that they see everything through this very constricted lens, even if I'm very sympathetic with, right. you know, with their conclusions. Right. And, you know, the practice of constitutional law brings these things together effectively because um, it's not just purely a doctrinal principle or a pure philosophical principle, but it's also what is the real world effect of this? And so you can begin with a, with a, strong presumption based on philosophy that if you're going to interfere in someone's life, you have to have a real justification for it. But if there is a real justification for it, because what you're doing is harming other people or something like that, then, um, you know, the exercise of government power under those circumstances uh, might be justified. But we begin, or at least we do at IJ, we begin with a strong presumption of liberty and we're orienting our practice of constitutional law and trying to move doctrine in the direction of taking people's um, presumption of liberty seriously. One of the most interesting conversations I ever had in my life actually took place in Las Vegas with uh, Steve Simpson, who had worked at IJ, and Adam Mossoff, who's a professor who's very big on intellectual property rights. But one of the things we were just discussing was they both really had a, a wonderful experience in law school, learning how to think more clearly, including one of the things they were stressing to me as somebody who's never gone to law school was that it's the best training and learning how to think like somebody who's not starting from your starting point and your premises. And one of the things I teach when I teach people how to communicate is really being obsessed with how other people are thinking, where they're starting from, and that if you just have the kind of blinders of this is how I see the world, you'll never be able to bridge the gap between where they are and where you are. And I'm wondering about your own experience, if, if you felt that there was really valuable takeaways broader than just, I understand now case law or something that you got from going to law school that you think, like, these would be valuable skills for anybody who wants to communicate. Yes, absolutely. So, um, one of the most important things that lawyers do, and I, I won't confine it just to law school, but what lawyers do is they actually have to convince someone. If you're a litigator, you have to go into court, you have to marshal your evidence, you have to marshal the case law and say, under the facts of these, the, these cases, we prevail because. And then you actually have to convince someone. It's not a matter of just like writing an op-ed or writing an academic article and just sending it out into the ether. Um, and one of the things I emphasize to my students and to the young lawyers at IJ is that judge sitting on the bench 
she doesn't bring your libertarian preconception. She is also bound by the case law. And so this takes a great intellectual effort. And in order for it to be convincing, you have to take all of this complicated material, understand it from her perspective as the jurist, um, and understand it from the perspective of your opposing counsel. And then you have to make it simple, so simple, clear, and logical that it is convincing. And so even in these very difficult cases we litigate, um, we can win. Say more about the simplicity, because that's, that's actually something that maybe just in the last two years has become a real obsession with mine, which was, you know, I think I have a great argument and it would, I think, have the elements or the basic conditions of what could become a good argument, but that really stripping it down to something that was easy to take in and almost effortless to take in. And uh, the way I describe it now is that you're not aiming for an argument that nobody can object to. You're aiming for an argument argument that makes your conclusion overwhelmingly obvious. So how do you think about simplicity and what do you see as like, what are some signals that somebody's not really hit the mark with simplicity? Right. So um, as I tell students and young lawyers, anybody can take something simple and make it complicated. Anybody can take something complicated and keep it complicated. Genius is being able to take something that is complicated, identify the two or three things that matter, and then expressing it as simply and clearly and directly as possible. That is really, really hard and it takes a tremendous amount of work. Um, and so in, in terms of approaching this as lawyers, um, what you have to do if you wanna have a convincing, if you wanna have a convincing idea is you have to give yourself a lot of time. You have to think about it thoroughly. You have to understand it better than everyone else. And then you have to simplify and simplify and simplify. And the reason why this matters is, frankly, um, you know, judges, for example, are busy. Most people are busy. And what people respond to, I think, is basically an emotional gut punch in the stomach. And so you need to make things so simple that you are triggering an intuition of injustice. People are not overwhelmed by the complexity or the majesty of your intellectual argument. They need to understand what the fundamental injustice is. That hits them in the stomach and then they become receptive to your reasoning. Um, you, nobody has ever, no judge has ever decided a case in someone's favor because that person has made them feel foolish or that person has so dazzled mm. them with their mind. Um, I, you know, one of the things that makes me constantly laugh is when I will explain to a young lawyer, you know, I don't understand what you're saying here in this paragraph or quite where it's going. And, and they'll want to come and run around and stand over my shoulder and say, no, 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 this is what I mean. Da, 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 da. And I say, you're not going to be standing in chambers. You're not going to be huddled over the judge telling the judge why he or she is a moron because they can't understand what you've written. <laughs> it is your responsibility to be clear, simple, logical, and orderly. Um, that is really hard. And of course, one of the things you have to do, um, sorry to ramble, I, pr I promise I'll just give 30 more seconds. One of the things that's important to do is you have to let go of your ego. Um, young people in particular are insecure. And so they think, if I don't have something to say, I should try to sound smart. Or if people don't understand what I'm saying because I sound smart, they'll be, somehow they'll be afraid to admit it or they'll be overawed um, by the, by the uh, vividness of my intelligence. That just isn't the case at all. And so you have to let go of the ego, think, think complex at the start, think simple at the end, and tell a compelling story that is both emotionally and intellectually appealing. That is the way to 
effectively communicate the philosophy and law of liberty and, and many other things, frankly. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, I feel quite jealous of my friends who are lawyers because you do get that feedback. Like you have, if not a market test, a real, a reality test of was I persuasive? Like I come from the think tank world and we don't actually have to persuade anybody. Right. We have to appear persuasive to a certain constituency who already agrees with us. And that's a much easier test to follow. Now, if you actually want to have an impact in the world, that's not something you like, right? Like you, you, right. you would actually wish that you had somebody sitting across from you looking up and saying, no, that didn't do it for me because then you could uh, improve. And, and often I find the best persuaders that I know uh, come from like an academic background or a teaching background where every single day they can see in the eyes of the people, you know, is this connecting? Right. Are they listening? Um, well, maybe we could take w one specific area that I've, I I've uh, heard a little bit about work you've done that I think is really relevant today and has become more relevant than ever in the last few months, which is our freedom to practice medicine online. And maybe you could talk about sort of uh, any cases IJ got involved in, sort of what your goals were and how you went about this process of making it persuasive and simple to the public and in the legal sphere. Sure. So um, we've done a whole series of cases on uh, what sometimes we might call medical self-determination. Um, one aspect of that is telemedicine. And so, you know, this means being able to use the internet to be able to talk to doctor, or I'm sorry, to be able to talk to patients and patients can talk to doctors. And, you know, one major impediment to effective telemedicine is that our country has a 19th century model of occupational licensing. There are, you know, 51 medical licenses in this country, if you include the District of Columbia. And yet, the you know, those borders in a, in a internet age are entirely arbitrary. And so we want people to be able to, you know, to be able to talk, which is you have a First Amendment right. And um, so one case I did that was focused on the First Amendment was a kindly elderly retired veterinarian. He had a PhD in microbiology and he was a graduate of uh, Texas A&M Veterinary School, which is, which is sort of the premier vet school in Texas. And he had spent his career helping animals um, and helping people. And when he retired because he was disabled, he wanted to continue doing that. And he spent 10 years on the internet helping people until... Uh, a decade later, Texas gets wind of it and cracks down on it because you must examine the animal in person. Um, and so before, before you render any opinion. And so there's like a complex first free speech doctrinal question here, which is if I am talking to a person one-on-one, -on -one, if I am giving advice, is that protected speech? Or does the First Amendment only protect speech where you're, you're standing in the park shouting a pro-Trump or an anti-Trump slogan? Um, second of all, um, we wanted to be able to talk, you know, we, we wanted to have, as in all IJ cases, a practical real world effect. And so Dr. Hines seemed to be perfect for that. He was helping people in Turkey. And like, you know, there were Scottish missionaries who were working in rural Nigeria who had like a cell phone and they'd taken in a stray cat. And so there's no veterinarians there. They just want advice on like, what do I feed this cat? There are no, there aren't any pet stores here. There isn't canned pet food. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that, uh, got Dr. Hines in trouble. So, uh, let, so let me take a step back. If you want to have an effective public interest case, and I think this is, this is true whether it's actually a public interest legal case or if you're trying to make a case as a young liberty-oriented thinker, um, you want to tell a story. Um, human beings love stories. We relate to stories. 
it goes back to that intuition of injustice that I was talking about. And so you want your stories to be simple. You want a heroic protagonist. Um, you want an evil villain. And you want things to be, and you, and you want some kind of outrageous act. And so here we have this kindly man in his 70s. He's helping people all over the world. He's doing it for free um, in most instances. And after doing it for, you know, helping hundreds of people, suddenly the government cracks down on him and tells him he's a criminal um, for doing Let, that. That's outrageous. I just want to pause on that because that I, that's really fascinating. So I think you, one thing you might think is that storytelling is about, all right, we take a case and then we figure out how to mold a story around it. But part of what you're saying is we're, we're trying to impact the law for the good. And so we are going to select cases that give us the clear-cut story so we can make this impactful principled argument. So it starts, the, the, the process of making an effective case starts way before you might naturally think it would. All like, who are we even going to take this case? Right. Yeah. Right. So we're, you know, we're looking for, for people who, can, uh, who have the right story to talk about a particular gap in the law. And so, you know, one of the big gaps that we have been trying to fill in in resisting occupational licensing is to say that if two grown adults are just talking to each other, um, that gets First Amendment protection. And the government can't say there is no First Amendment protection, even though there's only speech, because there's a special category of occupational licensing that nullifies the First Amendment. So that's all complex and technical and that kind of thing. And so we needed um, a set of stories, and we found a bunch of them. Um, I've done a, a bunch of these cases, and um, Dr. Hines is one of them. And so when I'm trying to evaluate a case, what I am looking for is someone who is compelling, um, who's heroic, and importantly for people who want to communicate about liberty, someone who transcends, you know, just ordinary partisan divisions. Um, you know, this is, this is the thing that distinguishes uh, the Institute from Justice, the Institute for Justice from um, I think a lot of organizations, which include think tanks and other public interest firms, is that we're not engaged in a locker room pep talk, right? We're not just gathering around like-minded people and grousing about how bad the world is. Well, we're happy warriors. We want to go out into the world and we want to convince people. Um, and it goes, it, it goes a little bit back to that, at least for me, that, that sort of letting go of your ego thing, right? Like we need to talk to people who aren't just like us civilly and respectfully and understand their perspective is legitimate. Um, and part of litigating a case is doing that, finding clients and stories that transcend partisan intuitions that everybody can get behind, that everyone, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or this or the that, like telling a kindly guy that he can't help, like, oh my gosh, like, you know, one of his, one of the people he was helping was a double amputee in New Hampshire. He'd had his legs crushed in an accident. And all he had, and he had no family, he was living on disability, all he had was his dog and he couldn't afford to take his dog to the vet. And so Dr. Hines was trying to help him. Um, and, and it actually seems to be the case that he was reported by, well, after, this, after this guy said that, after Dr. Hines found this guy in New Hampshire vet, that the New Hampshire Veterinary Board caught wind that Dr. Hines was, in quotation marks, practicing veterinary medicine in New Hampshire without a license and then complained to the Texas Vet Board. Um, and so that's just insane. You don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican to understand that that's just insane. What would be an example, and it doesn't have to necessarily be obviously a specific example of something where you'd think, like, maybe we would agree with this case, but it's it's too partisan. It's not, it's, it's trapping people into their pre-existing categories. It's not going to be the kind of case that could 
really be persuasive to somebody who's not already inclined to agree with us. Right. So if, I think if you had somebody who was doing something that they had a legitimate right to, but they were just an awful human being. Um, in other words, nobody was going to respond favorably to them. So e even if they had a, let, let's say they, you know, had a legitimate reason to do some to do something, but we just we personally found it morally objectionable, um, or we felt like a lot of people were going to find it morally objectionable. Um, we just wouldn't take those cases. Like we don't take cases, you know, uh, like we we don't do cases about pornographers, for example. And it's it's not as though if you talk if you talk to IJ lawyers. You know, they would say, and this would include me, that there may be very good free speech principles why we would protect types of, you know, types of communication, but we don't want to do that. Um, you're not entitled to IJ representation. It's not like you've had a criminal charge, so you can go in front of the judge and demand a criminal defense attorney. We're taking cases that we can present our clients as heroes, heroes of their own story. Um, you know, an, another classic example was. Um, the Supreme Court had a case about Nazis um, marching in a neighborhood of Holocaust survivors in the late 1970s, a famous case in Skokie, Skokie Illinois. Skokie, yeah. Right. So this, and, and so I think that there's no question that people have a First Amendment right to engage in core political speech, even if it is uh, outlandish or speech that we think would be reprehensible for most people. But we're not going to represent Nazis who want to march through the neighborhoods of elderly Holocaust survivors. Well, I mean, I even think... So one of my frustrations with many people who advocate liberty is that they kind of will lead with the most irrational uses of freedom. And I agree that those irrational uses should be protected. But the fundamental and one of the things I really love about the Enlightenment thinkers who were developing ideas of liberty is that they were fundamentally concerned with the rational activities that human beings had to engage in in order to achieve self-preservation and pursue happiness. And then it's in order to protect those, you can't have a government dictator saying that oh i don't think that that's rational you have to protect you have to basically take the government out of making that kind of assessment of that's good speech and that's bad speech but it's fundamentally you want to protect unpopular good speech that is the motivation for giving us the freedom to engage in speech and so in effect i think there's a real virtue even apart from persuasion in saying that one of the reasons one of the evils of government intervention is it's always sold to us as protecting us from the bad or at least the ugly, even if it's not literally, you know, violating somebody's rights, um, but that it gets used against the good. And that's exactly why I'm so big on, we have to protect the bad in order to protect the good. But I, I think there's something really right about holding up the cases where it's good people being crushed by bad laws. Right. And, and in fact, you know, it, you know, sticking with the First Amendment theme, one of the questions we, well, forget about the First Amendment. One of the questions we always ask internally is who is this going to help, right? So if somebody comes with us with a problem, is it a problem that we can document before we take the case that lots and lots of other people have it? Like we don't want some exotic, one-off, eccentric nutcase who's doing this one thing. And we're not going to spend a million dollars worth of lawyer time to vindicate his right to do this one thing that nobody else wants to do because that has no impact. And, and in some sense, um, a basic problem with our First Amendment jurisprudence is that the Supreme Court is very showy in protecting inconsequential speech or takes inconsequential speech very seriously. So that, you know, if you put up a, a banner while the Olympic torch goes by that says bong hits for Jesus, that's a Supreme Court case. Or if you're a Nazi right. marching through Skokie, that's a Supreme Court case. If you're a guy who is lying about his military service, 
Um, that's a Supreme Court case. None of this, no, no, like nobody is going to be convinced by a banner that says bong hits for Jesus. Nobody's going to go and become a Nazi because of these idiots marching in Skokie. And so the, the Supreme Court in some ways is able to be lavishly praiseful of liberty in these contexts when it knows the speech doesn't matter. But there are lots of contexts in which speech is, is consequential, like advertising or the um, the speech I was talking about a moment ago with Dr. Hines, where he's actually giving advice to people who want his knowledge and want to implement it. And the thing we're fighting at IJ is it's is that the Supreme Court is actually getting better, but over the years, um, lower federal courts have been extremely skeptical of extending First Amendment protections to consequential speech. And so we do cases about commercial speech, about advertising. We do cases about one-on-one -on -one advice precisely because precisely because this speech is consequential, the government regulates it and courts develop doctrines that say this speech is harmful, therefore you can regulate it. Well, maybe this is a bit of an aside, but I was curious. So I, I was looking uh, through some of your background and I, one thing jumped out at me because I, I cited it in my, uh, one of my books, Equals Unfair, which is the occupational licensing of casket makers. Right. And I, I wonder, I, I didn't look into exactly how you guys positioned the defense of that, but that could be taken as, well, this is a very narrow sort of like, out, you know, outrageous uh, example of occupational licensing. But is that the sort of thing that um, the courts would say, yes, that's, this is kind of a crazy over the line version, but it's a very narrow sort of decision or you position, how do you make the argument so that it's wider than kind of this really unusual, I don't think most states would have occupational licensing for casket makers. I, I could be totally wrong though. Yeah. So, so uh, it wasn't the making that was causing, so you're, you're talking about, a, uh, we've done a series of these cases in which represent people who are not licensed funeral directors who want to sell caskets. In the case of the monks of, of Louisiana, it's one of the, the more interesting cases I've done. They both made and were directly selling their caskets. And, and States, a number of states say that selling funeral merchandise, including caskets, is something you need an occupational license for. Um, so to, to, to put this in the bigger, so then you might say like, okay, well, yeah, a bunch of people are selling caskets. That's a little bit obscure. You know, what's the, what's the long-term impact on liberty? And so from IJ's point of view, we have a strategic blueprint. Um, there are really two aspects to any constitutional case. One is the specific uh, facts of the case. And the other is the underlying constitutional doctrine. And the big thing we're attacking in the occupational licensing context is something it's, I'll, I'll explain it very simple, but it's called the rational basis test. And you should probably throw in a sound effect or something of like uh, <laughs> ghosts howling or moaning or whatever. Um, but it, you know, in a nutshell, the Supreme Court has said, look, there are rights that we really care about like free speech rights, certain kinds of free speech rights, they get strict scrutiny. That means chances are if the government is impairing it, you're going to win the case and we're going to order the government to stop. 99.9% .9 of what people do in this country uh, is just like ordinary economic or social activity. That is subject to the rational basis test. And, you know, my law school professor uh, once explained it to us as saying, look, under the rational basis test, if the government offers a justification and the judge doesn't pass out laughing, the government wins. And so our property rights, our economic rights, they're all subject to rational basis review. So what we're trying to do when we take an outrageous situation like telling these monks that they can't sell their handmade caskets, we are trying to get the court to write a roadmap for how 
uh, infringements of occupational liberty should be analyzed. And so if, you know, if, if anyone cares to go and look at the decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, the significant parts of the decision legally is this long explanation that people actually get to use evidence to justify their constitutional rights. The government can't invoke just complete fantasies, um, things like that. And so that case is significant because it is a blueprint or a roadmap for other courts to look at factually different cases. And what we're trying to do at IJ is string together these different victories in different factual contexts that are all united by this basic underlying idea, which is the government needs a better justification than as long as the, as long as the judge doesn't pass out, we win. Um, and that's, that's one of the things we're trying to do. Just out of curiosity, it's been a long time since I've delved into that issue. Where did that get us? What, what case was that established in? And what was the kind of uh, the, the basic logic that we now are separating rights into rights we actually care about and rights that aren't that important? Sure. So the most famous footnote in all of constitutional law comes in footnote four in a 1938 case called U.S. v. Caroline Products. And it was about a, this thing they used to have back then called filled milk, which basically they would take vegetable oil and add stuff to it. It was, it was just as nutritious, apparently, or you know, generally speaking, um, as regular milk, but it was much, much cheaper. And so milk producers really hated it and wanted it regulated out of existence. And so one of the things that the court said in Caroline Products is that there are two kinds of rights. Um, there are fundamental rights, which are the enumerated rights, and then there are non-fundamental rights. And for the most part, fundamental rights are going to get strict scrutiny. Um, unenumerated, non-fundamental rights. And this is just like everything you do, like your right to put on a hat in the morning, your right to get a job as a doctor, your right to, you know, choose whichever path you want in going to, you know, driving to work or whatever. All of these unenumerated rights get rational basis review, which means the government can restrict them um, without any facts, just on a kind of naked assertion of power. That dates back to Caroline products. Then in 1955, the Supreme Court in a famous case called Williamson v. Lee Optical introduces uh, really what is sort of the modern version of the rational basis test. And what the court says is, we are not in the business um, of really evaluating whether restrictions on economic liberty affect your rights. As long as we can shrug our shoulders and say, ah, if there's sort of a good reason for it, or maybe it seems like there's a good reason for this law, that's it. Um, regardless of the impact it has on individuals, regardless of its rationality, and importantly for us at IJ, um, we're not going to inquire into the true motives. So, for example, in the monks case, uh, the, you know, the monks had gone to the legislature twice, and the funeral directors had a particular committee member to prevent their proposed bill from getting an up and down vote, right? And so, like, they understand how to manipulate the system. Um, to prevent there being an up and down vote on on an economic reform. And the reason why they did this is just to vacuum money out of consumer wallets by by uh, creating a barrier to entry, a barrier to competition. And so, you know, at IJ, we firmly believe, and the Fifth Circuit held on our Monk's case, that private economic protectionism is not a legitimate government interest. It's an abuse of government power, not a legitimate use. And... Um, 
what Caroline Products said is, or I'm sorry, what Williamson V. Lee Optical said is, we don't care why the government did something. If you can imagine that it was for a good reason, that's enough for us. Um, and you know, if, if the only limit on government power is the limit of the human imagination, then our constitution doesn't mean very much. And that's one of the reasons why we're fighting so hard at IJ. Well, and I mean, I didn't look deeply into it, but that sounds like a, a similar th thing that happened in uh, this veterinarian case where like, why were these laws where I couldn't talk to you about, hey, my dog has a stomach ache. I mean, my intuition would be like, because this protects from competition right. vets who are probably much better at uh, pursuing favorable laws than a person who wants to consult over the web. That, that, that's right. Like inevitably, uh, it's not to say that there isn't, you know, perhaps some useful economic regulation or other things like that, but everybody should understand that uh, the world is not like the old schoolhouse rock uh, video. Um, the way for, for a, a great deal of economic and property regulation, the way this stuff happens is that you have interested, you know, it's, it's public choice theory in economics. You have interested parties that can make money the old fashioned way, or they can go to the government and create barriers to entry or things that insulate them from competition. Um, and we experience that time and time and time and time again in our cases, which is one of the reasons why it's frustrating when the Supreme Court and other federal courts say, look, if you got a problem go to the legislature and get it fixed. Um, but the, the probability of an ordinary person uh, being able to go up against, you know, the trade association for a particular industry and get something changed is really low just as a practical matter. And so that's why we need courts to be vigilant um, in policing abusive exercises of government power that do not benefit the public, but just benefit private interests. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a common theme in our cases. <clears throat> so uh, I want to talk a little bit more about just some of these issues in terms of communication. But one thing that I uh, don't actually know a lot about is, so, you know, if I'm traditionally thinking about making a legal argument, it's going to be appealing to law and precedent. But when you're when you're putting forward a constitutional case where you're in effect asking them to overturn precedent, what is the sort of appeal? Because I know you can't just come in there and have a great philosophic argument appealing to first principles. So what are, what are the kind of strategies or thinking that goes in, into uh, trying to come up with an argument that you think actually has a chance to be persuasive in that kind of context? Sure. So one of the things that a lawyer has to do fundamentally is help the court makes sense of the existing case law. Now, if you're a legal realist or a cynic or something like that, you might look at the case law and say, oh yeah, you know, Republican judges do this, Democratic judges do that, and it's all just corrupt. And you can't do that as a lawyer. You have to be disciplined and you have to go in and help the court make sense of what often seems like dis, you know, kind of mutually contradictory or dissonant bodies of law. And one of the things you can say is, look, uh, yes, it's true that a person lost the case here, but you distinguish it on the facts. The reason why the citizen lost the case here is because the right he was asserting under the Second Amendment was the right to randomly spray bullets in the air because it was his birthday. And what we're doing here is responsibly using our firearms or something like that. Um, now, the point, the point being is that the, we can say to the court, the underlying test 
um, is the government exercising its power reasonably or rationally or whatever it is? Um, that test is flexible enough to encompass the facts in this particular case. So it, it, it's extremely rare and most courts don't have the power. It's extremely rare to go in and say, this prior controlling case is wrongly decided and must be overturned. You have to go in and you have to cabin that case narrowly. And then you have to say the underlying method of analysis is flexible enough to embrace the facts in our case for these reasons. And usually you have two or three cases where people have won. And so like, for example, um, you know, e even though people don't win very often under the rational basis test, they do win. And so we can point to cases, including our own cases, and say, these are instances in which people have won. They have won by showing that there is no logical basis for the government's action. The government's action was entirely arbitrary, or it can only be explained by an illegitimate motive like private economic protectionism. Um, that's how you do it. It is difficult. There is an, there is an art to it, um, and it takes years of experience to be able to do it well. There are a thousand ways to lose a case, and at least in these difficult constitutional cases, there's usually only one or two ways to win them. I'm curious, as j just this is more a biographical question, I guess, than anything else. Uh, have you ever been in an argument before court and there comes you know, a counter argument or a question that you weren't prepared for and sort of what's your experience in trying to grapple with that in the moment? Because the reason I'm asking is I think a lot of people just in their day-to-day -day lives like to discuss ideas and, you know, they have not sat down and spent six months or a year or two years really planning out a strategy and working through all the counter arguments. And I mean, my basic advice to people is usually just be genuine. And if you haven't thought of something, you say you haven't thought about it, but people want to do their best. Right. <clears throat> do you have any, excuse me, <clears throat> kind of go-to methods or tactics that help you in those kind of moments cope with something that this is a curveball, I have to deal with it? Right. Um, so there aren't, so there are lessons that I'll share, but I'll say at the beginning that having a court argument is not a context that provides much help because in a in a court argument, if you concede something as the attorney, you can lose the case for your client. Um, and so, it, it, you know, if a, if a judge asks something and it seems really important, you might say, you can't, what you don't want to do is just start shooting from the hip or you don't want to say to yourself, well, you know, I'm just going to start saying things because now I'm angry and it's personal and I'm just going to do whatever I can to push down. You can, in, the, in, in certain situations, say, you know, that hasn't been raised in the case before and if the court would like, we could file a supplemental brief on it. We'll take some time to study it, something like that. Um, but generally speaking, if I don't, if I don't know, some, there have been cases when a, a court has surprised me with a question that we haven't anticipated in our preparation, um, which, is, which is pretty rare, um, or that I just didn't understand the court's question, but I knew that the judge was hostile and the judge was trying to pin me down. The judge was trying to get me to, to make a fatal concession so that they, that judge could then write an opinion that was like, well, you know, we thought this case was about X, but at oral argument, counsel conceded that it's actually Y. And if it's about Y, then this is a very easy case to dispose of under whatever. No lawyer wants to see an opinion that says, <laughs> at oral argument, counsel conceded, and then like the case sure. goes out. So, but, but I think that, you know, one of the most important things about communication is if somebody says something that you genuinely don't understand or haven't thought about before is to actually say, can you explain, you know, I haven't thought about that before. Like, tell me a little bit more about it. That might actually make a difference and listen to them. Uh, and that's important for two reasons. One, 
if you're if you're a person of good faith and what you're actually interested in doing is learning about the world um, and growing as a person, you should actually listen to people. Um, if what you are, on the other hand, is a kind of insular, um, kind of fragile, insecure person who's only interested in talking to others to score points or to make them feel dumb or bad or to make yourself feel better, yeah, then you should just start like blathering about how they're you know an idiot or something like that. But you know, and, and this is like a, a difficult point for people who are defending liberty is that we have things to learn from lots of different people. Um, the, you know, if, if you're uh, like, if you're a college student and you're interested and you don't have any experience with what it's like to be economically disadvantaged and someone's trying to explain it to you, you should actually listen to that. Um, you shouldn't assume that at age 22 or 23 or 24 or 25, that because you've read a few books like Goodwill Hunting, you actually know what's best for the world. Um, so, so be humble, listen carefully, and even if you ultimately don't agree or you think your principles don't allow what someone's suggesting, say, you know, that, that's a, that is a legitimate way of looking at it. And here's how I would approach that. Or here's the things that I'm concerned about. What do you think about that? Um, and, and in some ways, the most important communication lesson for people to remember is that um, it's often not what you have to say, it's how you say it. And so if you're communicating with people in a way that makes you seem dogmatic, rigid, point scoring, um, then they are going to perceive you emotionally as shut off, as an other, as someone that, that you're not going to, it's like two people of two different religions bickering about which God is real, right? It, that there has to be, you have to be able to form an emotional and intellectual bridge with people. And to do that, you genuinely and sincerely have to take their ideas and their perspectives seriously. I mean, that's very in line with how I think about it, which is, I mean, I, I don't really get into debate, certainly not uh, in real life. But insofar as I get into potentially contentious discussions, my mindset is usually, all right, my, my number one mission is just to understand what their view is and how they're thinking about it. And if I find myself able to anticipate how they'll answer my answers, I'm on the right track. And so your mind is just so not focused on like how you're being perceived or am I proving right. my point or am I convincing them of anything? It's more solving a puzzle. And it, it, I find that even if they're getting heated, if your mind is there and focused on figuring out what's true, including how they're thinking about what's true, right. you, you are very unlikely to kind of fall into those traps of berating people or being flustered or being afraid. I mean, like you said, it's different in a courtroom where you have the responsibility of a client. Right. It's right. much easier to say, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're right about that in a in a one-to-one -one yeah, and, discussion. And and when people start getting either when when a person starts feeling flustered when they're having a conversation, or another person, um, you know, like the tone changes, things become a little bit hostile. What's happening there is that both people feel that their identity is under attack. That the 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 result of the conversation is to delegitimize someone's identity or their, you know, how they understand themselves. And if you were in a conversation where you feel that someone is trying to delegitimize your own identity or you're trying to do that to someone else, you're not engaged in a productive form of, of conversation. Um, and so you have to stop and think about, you know, there's like a real person behind that other person's eyes and they have to understand that about me. And we have to have conversations that are about mutually understanding each other and living in the world together, not 
you know, what I'm going to do is deconstruct you so that you now feel worthless and have to go in search of a new identity. Um, you know, and I, I think another thing for people to understand is that, you know, I, I tell you, like I am, I am a philosophically libertarian constitutional lawyer. I am going to be 49 years old in two months. And I don't feel like I have a solid grip on any set of basic truths. Like I have things that I believe and there are things that I think of as being fundamental to human flourishing and I have genuine commitments. But the longer you live and the more people you speak to, you understand that the world is kind of a, you know, uh, there are just lots of different perspectives. Um, and to the extent you can understand that and be able to have conversations with people, you will be a happier, better person and you will raise the level of consensus in the world. Um, and, you know, and, and conversely, if you're, if you're arguing because you believe that you're in possession of some special truth and that your mission is to propagate that truth and that, the, that ultimately all of society is converging on a single truth, um, that seems highly, highly improbable. Um, and go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking I, I, there's a lot there that's interesting. So I guess one question is, do you think there's anything you can do proactively knowing when you get into a discussion about important issues with people that there can easily become this tendency to see your identity being attacked. Do you, do, do you think there's anything you can do proactively to try to diffuse that or avoid it while still being able to, you know, very confidently or clearly raise, well, this is why I see things this way. Right. Right. And so I think that's, you know, I think that's exactly it as you, you know, say to someone, you know, I've never quite thought about it that way. And I can understand why, if you're concerned about X, that would seem like a really important thing. And, you know, my take on it, or to say like, you know, from my perspective, um, and, and that doesn't imply that the other person is wrong. It just implies that the world is a little larger and a little more complex than it seems. Um, and then try to talk about, try to talk about both of your interests as being legitimate and seeing like, is there a compromise? And maybe there is a compromise, but actually maybe there isn't. And that's okay too. But the point is, if you're listening to someone's principles and you're taking them seriously and their life experiences seriously, um, then even if you ultimately disagree on some matter of principle or some, some way to proceed, you both understand that you're real human beings and you've kind of you've had a meeting of the minds or a meeting of the hearts. Um, and, and you, you shouldn't walk away from that, um, feeling bad. It's difficult to do, and it takes a little bit of maturity and a little bit of confidence, but really, um, acknowledging that other people have legitimate points of view that disagree with yours is a very powerful way of being both happy and being persuasive. Um, cause you open people's minds. Yeah. I th the way I usually think about it is that, like I know the reasons for why I believe what I believe, but I'd have no expectation that you should have already come in with those reasons right. or that you should leave the discussion instantly agreeing with those reasons in part, just because that's not the way that thinking occurs. The, the most you can get from a discussion is a way of looking at the world that then over time you can process. Like I've, you know, had a fair share of people come to me and say, hey, something you did sent me in this trajectory. But it was never in the moment of discussion. They said, oh, yes, that's absolutely true. It planted a seed that grew. And so if you're, if you're just conveying the expect, a lack of expectation of agreement within the conversation, it gives people a lot of space to be very independent because they don't feel as if you saying, this is why I believe X has any sort of implication for what you are right. expecting or demanding of and, them. And, you know, 
Um, so, I, you know, I would say a, a couple of other things too, which is, um, you know, IJ is committed to being real world. And that what that means is that we want real results from courts, but we want to be able to point to material improvements in the world for everybody. And so I think there's often a disconnect between, you know, libertarians who tend to be abstractly cerebral, and they sort of think of themselves as having certain principles that they want to implement moral principles or economic principles. And then they get, then they get countered by but you know, a bunch of people just got put out of work, for example, by the pandemic. Like you might have a theoretical framework for addressing the pandemic or structural unemployment in the pandemic. Um, but somebody might say, but you know, there are real people out there who just, you know, they're struggling to figure out what to do um, and where they're gonna go. And uh, sort of if your gut instinct is to say, all that matters is my abstract theoretical framework, um, and not your concern about real people, like maybe the, the you know your cousin who just got laid off or something like that. Um, you're not going to be convincing because you're not speaking to the reality of the world or the uh, emotional um, salience of this event for somebody. Uh, now, it, it might you might say to yourself, "Look, I recognize that that's difficult, and I'm not sure how we address these questions." But I still think that as a matter of principle, we should address you know issues of unemployment or economics or something this way. Um, but it's it's to make sure that there's a place in your conversation for the legitimate interests of other people. Because if somebody's cousin gets laid off and they're having a hard time feeding themselves um, or taking care of their family, that is a legitimate thing to be worried about. That is a, that, like it is legitimate to believe in 2020 that there is some policy reason. Now it might be that the policy reason those people advance is different than the policy reason that a, a more traditional libertarian would advance. But it's not as though that concern is illegitimate. Um, and if you're so wedded to abstractions that you're incapable of internalizing the importance of real world consequences, um, you will not be persuasive. You'll seem like a bizarre egghead. Um, you'll, be, you'll be the opposite yeah. of persuasive. No, I, I actually think this is one of the major hard problems for people who come. I mean, my background is in philosophy, and mm -hmm. I think this is one of the challenges is uh, I believe that principles should be practical. They should lead to good outcomes. Right. And that the one of the major challenges, if people ever feel as if you're making them make a choice between reality and ideas, then it's not just that you've lost that debate, is they you've lost credibility in their eyes uh, by, you know, basically telling, saying to them, you know, your your cousin or your brother, whomever who lost it up, that doesn't matter. What matters is this idea that we all have right. to bow down to and worship. Um, but I wanted to get into, you know, you raised uh, some of the challenges in structuring an argument that can win in a court. But one of the things IJ, I think, has been really impressive about is the ability to make an argument to the public, a public who doesn't know anything about the rational basis test, although they can learn a lot even at, at, at a very kind of uh, accessible way about things like that, reading your material or watching your videos. Um, what do you think of when, when you guys are thinking about a strategy for not just winning in the courtroom, but winning over hearts and mind in the public? Because I mean, the, the way that you guys got in my radar, probably not a big surprise. I bet you could guess if I said which case uh, really brought you. The Kilo yeah. case? Yeah, yeah. The Kilo property rights Kilo. case, sure. Uh, and I think I might have heard uh, uh, of you guys before that, um, just from the circles I ran in, but that certainly is the most memorable thing, was you guys lost an eminent domain case, and yet the whole country was enraged, and really, right. uh, there. I think at the state level, there were a lot of laws that got passed to, yes. uh, in effect, 
follow you and what your reasoning was of what the court should have done. But so the, the point I wanted to stress is that you guys are very active and we are trying to have an impact both in the actual law, but also in the kind of hearts and minds of the public. And how do you think about making that case? I know it's probably goes back in part to what you're talking about, about having these stories that give you the punch in the gut. But is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of um, taking something that has to win in the courtroom, but that also has to win in the court of public opinion? Yes. Um, so there's a great deal of overlap, but one of the most important things is to recognize that the clients are the heroes of their own story. They are spokespeople, not just for themselves, but for other people who are in that predicament. And so one of the things we always figure out is, can Suzette Kilo, for example, like when you're thinking about taking the case in the first place, um, so what happens if like TV cameras are pointed at you? Or imagine you're on Good Morning America, right? Are you going to be able to talk about your own story in a way that is simple and genuine and personal and in your own words? People are all, journalists are always amazed. People are always amazed to discover that like, we don't coach our clients. Um, if a journalist wants to talk to a client, they'll, oftentimes they call me or, or email me and they think like, oh, you know, if it's okay with you, could I talk to this person and you can be on the other line and maybe I'll give you a list of the questions or something. I'm just like, here's their cell phone number, just call them. <laughs> um, and, and so, um, you know, one of the things that makes stories about liberty or makes you convincing in talking to the public is you actually need heroes who can speak for themselves. So for example, if, if there mm. are people out there who are thinking about, you know, I want to write a book or I want to, I want to have a talk at my school right? Getting some egghead professor up there and another egghead professor up there to sit around and talk about utility functions and which one best predicts, you know, the, the trade gap or something like that. Boring. Like if you, you know, figure out people whose lives are impacted by the struggle for liberty and actually bring them up. It is the most captivating thing. I'll tell you whether it's at, at events for our, our donor supporters, or we have um, events for law students in the summer, we bring in real clients like the Kilo in Kilo, the city of New London, and say, what was it like? Uh, for, you know, there were the, the Christopher family was another family involved in that case. And they were sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner on a, I think it was a Sunday that year. And uh, a knock came at the door and a courier gave them a letter that said, we've condemned your home, you have 30 days to get out. So at which, you know, they calculate wow. the 30 days at that point, it was like Christmas day or something like, so between Thanksgiving and Christmas day, they had to leave this, you know, their family home and they had nowhere to go. Um, and so, you know, hearing about the story of liberty, not as a set of philosophical abstractions, but what was it like to be sitting at your Thanksgiving table, reading this to your family and saying, we don't have the money or the ability. And you know what, we're going up against, um, pharmaceutical giants, retail giants. We're going up against the city of New London. It's supported by the government in Connecticut, uh, the government of Connecticut. And what the hell are we going to do? A bunch of working class people sitting around this thing, right? Like that's the story of liberty right there. And, and like all great stories throughout history, the, you know, the amazing thing about Heroes for Liberty is that they are just ordinary people who, who often don't understand that they had that steel inside of them until the moment of truth comes and they're called on to either stand up and fight or just buckle and walk away and do what, do what they're told. Um, and so meeting an ordinary person who discovered in themselves the heroic fortitude to persevere in the face of long odds, they can do more to convince a room of people 
of the, the virtue of fighting for freedom than any well-spoken lawyer or egghead law professor or whatever. I mean, that literally gave me chills. So maybe, maybe we should end on that. But any yeah. kind of final thoughts uh, for, you know, I, the, the, I mean, I haven't even told you, but the, I mean, the audience is I'm, I'm interested in helping people communicate better about the ideas of liberty. I think we covered some really amazing stuff, but any final thoughts on sort of your words of encouragement or advice? Absolutely. So um, the world is a wonderful place. Be optimistic, believe in yourself, believe in others. If you don't understand what somebody else is saying, don't assume that it's because they're stupid or they're acting in bad faith or they have some character flaw like racism. Um, really try to understand it. Um, master all of the knowledge that is necessary for you to be an expert and then express it as simply and clearly in as down to earth way as you can. Be humble and be compassionate. Um, if you can do those things, you will be a tremendous advocate for liberty and you'll be a good human being. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, where should people go to follow your work in the Institute for Justice? Sure, they can come to www.ij.org to learn about um, all of our cases and all the stuff we're up to. Yeah, and check out the YouTube, video, uh, YouTube channel. I think you, you guys have been doing some interesting stuff uh, on, on the video side of things yeah. lately as well. So right. appreciate your time, Jeff, yeah, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you. I appreciate it. Look forward to being back again, maybe one day. Yeah.